Good morning, welcome. Do you want to come and grab your seat? We're going to get started with the uh, sermon today. Thank you so much, everyone, uh, for bearing with us this morning. Not ideal, um, but we are doing it. God is still good. God is still on his throne, and we are still working it through. What's going to happen today? Two things. We are going to be starting our new sermon series, Well With My Soul, looking at the prophet Elijah from the book of 1 and 2 Kings. So if you've got a Bible, could you go to 1 Kings chapter 16? We will get there, read a little bit of that. Also, as we roll into chapter 17, we'll read a little bit of that as well. Um, we're also going to be starting our well-being journey, which is something we're running in life groups, which begins this week. So get connected to a life group. If you haven't got a copy of the books, they're on the front here. We'd love everyone to grab a book. Uh, they're our gift to you, and you read through it as part of... Um, the well-being journey, so please come and get one of those if you haven't got them. If you want to find a little bit more about Elijah, we're obviously going to preach through him, but I've recently finished this book called um, uh, The Man of Heroism and Humility, Elijah by Charles Swindle. He is an American theologian who's wrote a bunch of books about um, characters throughout the Bible. I've just finished his one on Elijah. It was brilliant, really insightful, lots of good stuff. I've got three copies here for free. If you would like a copy, come and grab one. They're our gift to you. Please take one, read it, um, and enjoy that, learning a little bit about Elijah. Thank you, Andrew. If also, if they're gone and you still want one, just come and talk to me. I'll order you one and get it delivered to your house. So if you want to learn a little bit more, please come and grab one. All right, Elijah, he is a significant character in the Old Testament. He is one of the, the leading prophets in the Old Testament. He is so significant that he not only appears in the Old Testament, but he then appears again in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is transfigured, two characters appear with him. One is, in Mo- is called Moses, the other one is Elijah. He is a significant man, but yet he is just a man. James 5.17 says he's a man just like us. So he's distinctly human, yet used mightily and powerfully um, by God. And we're going to follow his journey throughout his life as we go through this series, looking at him. And he is someone who experienced incredible highs with God. There were some things that happened in his life that are like, wow, that is amazing. And he also experienced some significant lows as well. And so as we go through the well-being journey in our life groups and look at some of the things there that help us process everything that's happened over the last 18 months and all that we've been through, Elijah will pop up in that and we'll be looking at him on a Sunday as well, particularly from the text and see what that speaks to us about who he is, how God used him and how we can learn uh, from that. But, so hopefully you found 1 Kings 16. But before we get there, I just need to put it in context, because we're going to look at the end of 1 Kings 16. So let's just go through it. So in the beginning, in the garden, God created man and uh, uh, Adam and Eve, he created man. Everything went wrong. Uh, they rebelled. There was sin and rebellion. They were thrown out of the garden. All went wrong. Then we have Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world, and you're going to have descendants that are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God then outworks his promise through Abraham, through his son Isaac, through his son Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. The one we know about really is Joseph, and the bit at the end of Genesis, we know all about him. Joseph goes down into Egypt. All the family comes together. Great. The family then grows and multiplies. We move into the book of Exodus. Uh, They're now a mighty nation, it says, numbering possibly as much as a million of them. But the man who rules over them, Pharaoh, is a cruel, vicious tyrant. So God raises up Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. We have 
plagues. We have parting of the Red Sea. They come to the Mount Sinai. The presence of God comes down. He gives them the law. And God says, you are my people. You are my chosen people. And he gives them the law. And so we roll through um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Then we get to the, they enter the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham under a man named Joshua, who was Moses' successor. Joshua and the people of Israel take the land. We preach through the entire book of Joshua, if you want to go and review that. So they're now in the land. God had promised to Abraham. God was with them. But it didn't go well there. Israel, again, started to muck things up. They'd muck things up in the wilderness. They'd muck things up back in the garden. Everything was going wrong. And so we have the book of Judges. You follow the book of Judges. It's just a downward spiral of just them, Israel getting worse and worse and worse and rebelling against the Lord. And God raises up leaders and kind of brings them out of slavery. And then they do it again. And you're just like, oh, crumbs. Then we get to the beginning of the book of Samuel. And then day, uh, the people of Israel say, we need a king so we can be like everyone else. So God raises up Saul. Saul's turns out very bad. And then who comes next after Saul? David, the most significant character in our Bible outside of Jesus. God raises up David. He's a man after God's own heart. He defeats God's enemy. He's a mighty warrior, but also a poet who writes many of our Psalms. He establishes the boundaries of Israel. He establishes the capital in Jerusalem. Israel is this nation in God's land under God's rule. It's going so well. He even says, God, I want a permanent place for you, not a tent. I want a temple. So I'm going to build a temple. And it's all going brilliantly. But then what does David do? He commits adultery. And murder. And you're like, oh, David, you're doing so well. And then David's son comes along, Solomon. And God comes to Solomon and says, Solomon, you can have anything. And Solomon says, I want wisdom to rule and lead your people. And you think, good call, Solomon. And so God blesses him with the wisdom. He becomes the wisest man who's ever lived outside Jesus. And through that, God gives him prosperity. And Israel grows to its biggest, its mightiest it's ever been. A golden age. The temple is built. Solomon writes Proverbs. There is gold and silver just everywhere because the, the nations are coming. And it's just like, it's an amazing time. But then what happens? Solomon goes after foreign women, marries many of them, hundreds of them. And he turns his heart away from the Lord. And he ends up worshipping idols. And it all goes wrong there. And you're like, oh, Solomon. And so we find we get into the book of Kings. It's all gone wrong under Solomon. And then Solomon uh, dies, uh, 1 Kings 11. And his son, Rehoboam, comes in. And Rehoboam, unfortunately, isn't a nice guy. And he treats the people of Israel really badly. And there is a rebellion. And a guy called Jeroboam. Yes, they sound the same, and it gets confusing. But Jeroboam, a guy called Jeroboam rebels, and what happens is the nation splits. That's the key thing. Israel, which was one nation under God, becomes two. And the northern kingdom is known as Israel, and the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And Judah has Jerusalem, it has the temple, and it has the line of David which God had promised to David, saying there will always be someone sitting on your throne. And eventually there will someone sit on your throne forever, which we know that comes to Jesus. But we're going to focus on the northern kingdom because the northern kingdom splits away and it doesn't have Jerusalem, it doesn't have the temple. So the king, Jeroboam, sets up false worship. He sets up golden calves at either end of the kingdom and so says, you can go and worship God, but you can only do it in that place. So he's worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. And the people of God in the northern kingdom go after fold worship. And the fact that it's golden calves, if you think back to Exodus, what did they worship at the base of the mountain that all went wrong? A golden calf. And you're like, oh my goodness, history is repeating themselves. And what you find in Israel is you have a succession of kings, one after the other. And the one thing they have in common is they were bad. 
Judah, the southern kingdom, had good kings, it had okay kings, and it had bad kings. The northern kingdom of Israel had bad, bad, bad kings, all of them. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 13, 1 Kings chapter 14, and 1 Kings chapter 15, and 1 Kings chapter 16, you find a, just a litany of bad kings one after the other, and there is murder and usurping, and you have, I think there's four dynasties with five kings, and they all end up killing each other. It's horrific. And then we get to our passage. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to start reading at 1 Kings 16, verses 29. All right, so... Things are really bad, is the way we could sum up what's happening in Israel in the north. And it says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, southern kingdom, and I think Asa was a good king as well, Ahab, you need to learn that name because he's going to come up again, the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel uh, in Samaria for 22 years. Now, Ahab is this important character. He ascends the throne of Israel. And the, the kingdom of Israel is in a pretty good shape in terms of economically, politically, after all this infighting. Because uh, Ahab's dad, Omri, has established that. Ahab, um, Ahab's dad, Omri, is basically a false David. And he establishes the northern kingdom. He establishes a capital, but it's in Samaria, not in Jerusalem, where God's capital was. And so he's a counterfeit kingdom with a counterfeit capital. And we know Ahab is going to reign over this kingdom for a long time, 22 years. But, so the kingdom's established, but we find out the king is bad. What's it say in verse 30? And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than, more than all who were before him. So Israel, northern kingdom, kings, bad. But he wasn't just bad, he was bad. He was so significantly bad that the author of Kings condemns him as being worse than all the other kings. It's like, oh my goodness, you're just terrible. You're super terrible. These guys were bad, you're worse than them. But not only was he bad, guess what? His wife was bad as well. Verse 31, and now if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, remember him, golden calves, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, remember that name, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he follows the ways of Jeroboam, trying to worship the Lord in the wrong way, with the golden cars in Bethel and Dan. But not only do that, he marries a foreign woman, which was expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy. The reason for it being forbidden is because he, he says, if you marry foreign women, they will turn your hearts away and you will worship false gods. Guess what happened? He married a foreign woman, turned his heart away, and he worshipped false gods. Baal. Baal is mentioned multiple times uh, throughout the um, Old Testament. It goes back way into the numbers through the book of Judges. It was a constant problem. Baal was a god of rain, the storm, uh, fertility, and often used sex and ritual prostitution in his worship. It was an evil, abominable religion, and God said, well, nothing to do with it. Drive it out from among you. You won't have anything to do with it. But the king of Israel, God's people, starts worshiping Baal. And if that wasn't bad enough, guess what? It gets worse. Verse 32, he erected an altar of Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. So, his dad was a false David who established a kingdom with a false capital. He now comes along as a false Solomon and builds a false temple to a false god. And so it's just going, it's just history repeating itself and it's just getting worse and worse. So he built in this new capital a temple not to the worship of the God of Israel, 
whose people they are, but to a false god, a foreign god. And what makes it doubly worse is the irony in there that Jezebel was from this place called Sidon, which is often um, linked with another place called Tyre. You hear about Tyre and Sidon, which were two cities to the north of Israel. And the king of Tyre, Hiram, was used, was a friend of Solomon, and gave so much of the material to build the temple. And so the temple of the worship of God was built from that area, and now a temple of worship from a false god was also coming from that area. It's just hideous. It gets worse and worse and worse. And then it sums up the next bit. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How would you like that summary of your life? It's terrible. That's what Ahab So Ahab's not good. And then there's an illustration at the end. If we look at verse 34, this is kind of funny illustration um, that sort of feels out of character if you read it, where it talks about, it says, in the days of Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. What's this a reference to? Well, Jericho was a city, a pagan city, a false city that was destroyed by Joshua and the people of Israel at the command of God when they entered the promised land. If you remember the story that marched around it, blue trumpets, walls came down. city was destroyed. At the end of that, Joshua, under the command of the Lord, says, just curse it. No one ever is going to rebuild it. No one's ever going to come back and worship false God and do the evil they did in this city. He said, if they try it, it will cost them their children. That's how bad it was. Don't go near it. What happens here? They try and rebuild it. This is an outward act of rebellion against the God of Israel. He said, you said this, and it's basically a stuff you. We are going to do it. And Ahab, as the king, would have been overseeing building projects. So this guy goes down there, and he rebuilds a city. And what are the consequences? Now, scholars disagree on exactly what happened. Were they acts of judgment on these sons? What is probably more likely is what they found in um, old cities is they actually sacrificed their children and they built them into the wolves, their bodies. And so this is just total rebellion against God and it's just a picture of how bad the situation got. It's just gone terribly wrong. When you have bad leaders, the people follow and they do bad things. And this is what's going on. This You've got a bad king, his wife is bad, the nation is going bad, everything is going wrong. They are totally opposed to God. Let's read on. We're now going to skip over into chapter 17, verse 1. It simply says this. Now Elijah, ha-ha, he's the one we're meant to be looking at. The Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. Now just to put this in context, we know up to this point we know nothing about Elijah. This is his first appearance in the Bible. So he is just entering the scene. He is coming on board with the story. And he, he comes unannounced. He just appears. We know his name, Elijah, which means Yahweh is God. So that gives, that's gives us a hint of where this is going because names are prophetic. He is a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. No one knows where that is. The, area, the land of Gilead, people got an idea of that from his history, but Tishbe, because he was a Tishbite, so he was from Tishbe, if you're a Brummy from Birmingham, you get the idea. No one knows where it is. It's an insignificant place that history hasn't bothered to remember other than its single kind of reference here. And so he has no clout politically, he has no clout Geographically, his family aren't kind of big in the area or have money. He's just appeared on the scene. He has nothing 
to him that can make him seem impressive in any way. He is a yokel. He's from the country out there, not in the city where stuff happens. He's out in the backwaters. And he just comes and he appears. And he is a prophet of God. And the role of the prophet is to speak the word of the Lord. They've had an encounter with God. And out of that encounter comes the words of the Lord that they then speak. And they were there in Israel's history to remind Israel of their covenant to their God. The agreement that was made way back in Sinai when the commandments came down and God says, you are my people, I've chosen you, you're not better than any other people or more significant, I've just chosen you and I've put my heart upon you and therefore you live a certain way. They come back and they remind him. So the, the prophet has appeared and he speaks and he says to Ahab the king, so he's just come out of nowhere and he wanders up to the king. Who's in charge right here? I'll go and say something to him. It says, and he says to Ahab the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What is he doing at this point? Who is uh, Ahab worshipping? Baal. What is Baal the God of? The rain and the storm and the fertility of the land. And he basically turns up and says, Baal is not God. Baal is not in charge. You've been worshipping a false god. And then he says this phrase, before whom I stand, he's basically saying, I stand before a king. But I don't stand before you as a king. I stand before the king of kings. I stand before the one with all authority. I stand before that throne, not your throne, Ahab. And he says, that Lord is the real storm god. That is this god, the god of Israel, Yahweh, is the one who is superior. He commands the wind and the rain. He'll say when it rains, not Baal. He's the one in charge. So basically what Elijah has done, do you remember that scene in Braveheart where the two armies are there and they're kind of looking at each other and Mel Gibson with his great accent is on the horse with his woad and his things and they're like, what are we going to do? And he just looks around and goes, I'm going to go and pick a fight. And he marches down the other one and then there's, ah, you know, all that happens. That's what Ahab's done. But he hasn't got an army at his back. He's gone into the king, into his throne room, into his place where there's the worship of Baal. And he's come to pick a fight. And all he's got with him is the Lord, the God of Israel. Ahab doesn't stand a chance. And so that's what he does. And then the Lord speaks. So the prophet has spoken. The Lord speaks. Verse 2. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him. That's Elijah. Depart from here. That's probably a good idea when you just <laughs> walked into the king and basically said, going to be no rain. Your God sucks. So he says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself at the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you here. So God speaks to him, and he says, basically, get out of there. And what he's saying in there, turn eastward to this brook, and basically he's saying, leave Israel. Because he's gone into Israel. He's going across the Jordan River to the area of the side. And he's basically saying, leave that area. And there is a symbolic thing where the, as the God goes with his prophet, God is leaving Israel. He's saying, you can worship Baal, but you ain't going to get any answers. Because he's not the true God. So the prophet is leaving. And I'm going to take the rain and the water with me. And he goes across the Jordan. And God says, I'll provide for you there. God is faithful to his people. Faithful to his people. So you're going to have water from the brook. Israel's going to have nothing. 
There's been no rain, nothing there, but I'm going to provide for you from the brook. He is out of Ahab's reach. Another thing about we know about Kerith is we don't know where it is. So God is taking his prophet to a place of obscurity, out the way. He's spoken the word of the Lord. He's been faithful. And God says, now, come on, we're going away. And God says, I'm going to provide for you. The ravens are going to come and feed you. If we read in the book of Job and the Psalm 147, it talks the Lord provides food for the ravens. And now the ravens are going to provide food for Elijah through the Lord. So even in the wilderness, he is going to be provided for just like Moses and the people of God were before him. So he he takes him away from what's happening, and the presence of God is leaving Israel. And this is a great bit. What does it say at the end there, verse 5? It says, So he went, that's Elijah, and did according to the word of the Lord. I'd love that to be written about me. You know what was written about Ahab? He did more evil than anyone before him, or you could have written about you, he did Uh, according to the word of the Lord. And the prophet obeyed immediately. He immediately left. He went. He went over to a place of obscurity. He went from the limelight, being in the king's court, pronouncing the word of God, there will be no rain. Ha! And then God says, right, go over there now. Right out the way to a place of obscurity. And he obeyed. And God sometimes brings us into places of prominence, but he also takes us to places of obscurity out the way. So whereas if you've got one of those Bibles, you can write in, underline that bit. He did uh, according to the word of the Lord. And when there was suffering in the land of Israel because of their disobedience, God was providing for Elijah. His obedience brought blessing. So that's what we're going to cover today. Let's look at a few things that we can learn through that for us now. So there's the situation. There's the introduction of Elijah to us, three things I want us to learn. The first one is to recognize a land opposed to the Lord. Recognize that we live in a land opposed to the Lord. Israel, the northern kingdom, was a nation opposed to God. And this came from the top. The leader, the king, was opposed to God blatantly, um, obviously, in all that he did. But this just then trickled down through society. We see them... There were false, um, the calves, false calves of worship in the north and the south of the kingdom. There was the temple of Baal built in the capital by Ahab. There was then altar rebellion to the Lord in the rebuilding of Jericho. And all that happened, there was a land that was utterly opposed to God in every way. It was opposed to God in its political systems, in its social systems, in its religious systems. Does that sound familiar? We live in a Western, secular society where it is a built and opposed to the things of God and the ways of God. We are living in a time where his name is not honored, his name is not glorified, his name is not given any worth, his word is considered old and out of date, he's not listened to, it is mocked, his name is used as a curse word. We have systems and policies and places that are directly opposed to who God is. We are definitely living in a post-Christian culture. There are other parts of the world that aren't, but here in the West, it used to have a Christian heritage very strongly, very many ways, but now we have moved beyond this. And this will manifest in our family, in our workplace, in our friendship circle, in our schools, in our government, in social norms. Everywhere there is a culture that is posed to God. And we should look around 
and see that. We should apply a biblical lens to what we kind of consume because for us, it's the air we breathe. It's all we've known. This is what we've grown up with, but it is not the way God would have us run the world. And this is what was happening in Israel. Israel was actually growing. It was quite stable at the time and it was having prosperity. There were building projects going on. So people would have had jobs and the economy would have been booming, but they were opposed to the Lord. And into this context, the Lord withdrew his presence. He said, fine, if you want to do that, you can do that. But also into that context, he sends his people to speak. He sends his men and women into places of power, places of influence, into workplaces and homes and friendships, and they are there to speak. They are there to be a light shining in the darkness. The church still exists. The church is still here, and it's not going anywhere in this nation. Despite what's happening in culture around, the church is still here, and God has always had men and women who are willing to serve him, even in the face of great opposition and great culture. He still sends men and women to declare his goodness and his greatness to all who will hear. And he does have men and women today, like Elijah, a prophetic people who are to go forth and proclaim the goodness and greatness of God. And as a church, in response to where we find ourselves in that kind of society, in that place, just like Elijah, there's two things that we are to do. We are to, firstly, speak the word of the Lord. Just like Elijah, in the face of Ahab, and the culture around us, we are to declare what God has said. We find this in our Bibles. We are to be men and women of the word, reading our Bibles regularly, understanding it, kind of coming along with it. Please get into it through this series. Read a bit of 1 Kings, 2 Kings as we're following along. But I just want to challenge this morning. Are you reading your Bibles? Are you doing it regularly? If you are asked to proclaim the word of God, do you know it well enough so that you can do that? Because if you have the opportunity but you don't have the resources because you haven't put the time in, then what's going to come out isn't going to be word of God to those people. And our purpose as God's people is to speak the truth. We are to declare who God is. We are to declare what he has done. And for us now as New Testament believers, that is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one we are to proclaim. He is the one we are to point people to. He is the one to say, this man who came wasn't just a man. He was God the Son. He was God the Son. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He was both fully man and fully God. He then died in our place for our sins on the cross. The punishment we deserve for our rebellion, he took. He then rose bodily from death appeared to his followers. He ascended into heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit to fill his followers and be with them forever. And that's how we have the church. That is what we are to declare. We are to speak it proudly. We are to speak it consistently. We are to speak it with humility as well. We are to declare the truth of the gospel in the face of lies. And it's not just that, the good news of Jesus. We speak into situations we find ourselves in our homes, in our workplaces, in our social friends. When people are saying and doing things that are contrary to the word of God, we are to, with humility, come against that and say, actually, no, that's not right. That's not the way God would have us live. That's not the way we should be. 
We should live like this and not like that. And there is a reason for that because there is a creator. And this is the way he's built the word. And he's given us a word to read and to study and which is a manual for our life. This is how we are supposed to live. And we are to be men and women who faithfully, fearlessly proclaim the word of God just like Elijah. The next thing, the last thing we are to do on a direct day is we are to obey the word of God. Elijah spoke it. Straight out to Ahab, he was fearless, incredible, but then he obeyed it because when God said, right, time to go, time to come out of the limelight, time to go to obscurity, time to hide away with me, what did he do? It says he did it straight away. He did it immediately. It's no good saying one thing and then doing another. It's no good proclaiming the word of God over here and then living a lifestyle that is contrary to it. The Bible teaches us all we need to know for life and godliness and how we are to act. We are to live lives of integrity. We are to pursue holiness. We are to work hard in whatever jobs we do. We are to honor our leaders. We are to love our neighbors. We are to serve the poor and the needy. We are to give generously with the finances God has given us. We are to be part of a church community. We are to confess our sins. We are to read our Bibles. We are to pray for the sick. The list goes on and on. That is what we are to do. And so my challenge for us this morning is, are you obeying the word of the Lord? You can answer that, by the way. That's not, that's not rhetorical. But are you obeying the word? Lord? What's God speaking to you about through his word? If you're reading your Bible daily, if you're here and you're listening to sermons and you're just, the word is saying, what's God challenging you about? What's God speaking to you about? What's God saying, you need to do this, you need to stop doing that, you need to start doing that, you need to get this sorted, you need to start kind of getting involved in these things. What is it? And the question then comes, are you obeying the word of the Lord? Because our example from Elijah is a man who spoke the word of God faithfully, fearlessly, but also obeyed the word of the Lord. Even when on the surface it looked kind of like, you want me to go where? <laughs> and do what? With whom? You know, but he did it and he obeyed the word of the Lord. So my challenge for you today is, are you speaking the word of the Lord? Are you reading the word of the Lord? And then I'll finish up with this last thing, really last thing. Whenever you study a character in the Bible and you look to them and you learn from them and we're going to spend a lot of time with Elijah, make friends with him, you must always get to one place and that's Jesus because Jesus is a better Elijah. Jesus is a better Elijah. Elijah is a type, if you will, of Christ because Jesus came into a culture that was opposed to God. Jesus didn't come into a culture that was opposed to God. He came into a culture that was opposed to him as God. And he came and he walked a place. The Roman Empire at the time worshipped many, many gods. He was born in obscurity, in a backwater, nowhere place. The people were like, Where, where's the Messiah born? And they had to go and ask around. Oh, Bethlehem. He stood before rulers who were false rulers, opposed to God. He stood before rulers who were both earthly and supernatural that he fought with and he spoke the word of God to. He spoke the word of God faithfully in all people to all situations, to religious leaders, to political leaders, to those who are the poor, the needy, the broken. He obeyed God's word in every possible way. He did not need provision, but he provided for others. Not only did he stand before an enemy, but he totally defeated him on the cross and through his resurrection. 
Jesus is a better Elijah. And because of that, we can do the same. It's not about us doing it in our own strength, being better, being smarter. It's about us standing in the presence of God. It's about us standing in what Jesus Christ has achieved for us. I'm holy and righteous because of him. I've been called to proclaim the good news of Jesus because of him. He provides for me because of that's his abundant goodness and grace. He's given me his word that I am to learn. Even when I obey him, it's because he's poured out his grace upon me that I may walk in it. Jesus is our better Elijah. So what we're going to do now is going to worship him. We're going to come back before him. I pray that through that time, he'll speak to you. He will minister to you. This week, as we go into the well-being journey, we're going to start reading the book and watching the videos. If you haven't got a book, please come and grab one now. Just do it during the worship so you don't forget. So you've got that turn up to your life group this week. If you're not in a life group, get connected to one so you can turn up. And we'll start working this out together and say, how is it well with my soul and how are we doing and following after the example we see in Elijah by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray and then the band are going to lead us on with a bit of worship. Do you want to just close your eyes? Hold out your hands, maybe. I'm just going to pray. And you know what God said to you through that. You know how he was prompting you by his spirit. You know kind of what he's been doing in your heart, and you know what he's been putting his finger on. So I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would give you grace to walk in that, to respond to that faithfully, humbly, with humility to recognizing we have a great example in Elijah, but actually our greatest example is Jesus himself. And he's poured out his grace, his mercy, his spirit on us. And Lord, we thank you for that. Holy Spirit of God, we pray you come and fill us now. Lord God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you redeemed us. We thank you that you've called us to be your people, to speak your word in all the places we find ourselves whether it's a place of prominence and influence, whether it's a place of obscurity, whether it's one person or a hundred people. Lord God, we want to say we want to be faithful people. We want to be faithful people to obey your word. We want to hear your word and like Elijah, be swift to obey, even when it doesn't make sense or can actually be painful. Lord God, we pray, fill us now. Fill us with your grace, your mercy. Cause our hearts to soar in worship. Give us eyes to see you afresh, Lord Jesus. We want to say we love you. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. And God's people said...